So what I want to do is just give you a brief head start um, like on where we're kind of going this morning. Um, so if you want to go ahead and start turning to 1 Corinthians, um, that's what we're going to get to eventually. It's going to take us a couple minutes to get there. But what, I'm going to do, what, we're, going to, what we're going to talk about this morning is the economy. Got a response, okay. But we're not, we're not talking about just like the economy in the general sense of the word. Um, so what we're going to talk about is the, just the economy of God. And that's not some big theological word. It's not some big thing you learn in seminary. What, what, I'm, what I'm talking about when I talk about the economy of God is something a little bit different. So when you think of an economy, you think of what holds value, how, thing, how different portions of the country and the world, how they interact together. Um, how what things hold value and then things don't hold value and, and how they all interact together. That's kind of like a very, very, very not detailed explanation of an economy. And I took one class in college and never want to think about it ever again. But when we see, we talk about global economies or, or economies within a country, they're always changing, right? I mean, oh, the economy's doing really well or the economy's doing really bad. It's constantly fluctuating. But what we see is that the economy of God, the way that God interacts with the world, the way that he has structured the world and his creation does not change. It is always constant. What God says holds value, always holds value. What God says is not worth anything, is never worth anything. God's economy does not change. So I just wanted to give you that. I'm going to reference the economy of God a couple times. That's just kind of a brief overview. Um, it's not some big theological term or anything. It's just kind of a phrase that I'm going to use. But before we get into more of that, what I want to do is just give you a brief run-through of where we've been the last five or six weeks, because I think what we're going to see is this is kind of stemming from a lot of the conversations we've had about the local church. Um, it wasn't never really planned to be a series on the local church. It's kind of turned into that, and I think it's been awesome. Um, but it's also, this morning is going to be kind of a summary of what we've talked about, but also kind of a stepping stone, kind of a jumping off point for the next four sermons that specifically I'm going to um, be preaching over the next couple months. So we said that the church is established by Jesus, that this belongs to him. It's not something that is ours, that this, the church belongs to Christ. And Ben actually sent us an article of a church that has listed that Jesus Christ is their senior pastor. And I think that's pretty awesome. Um, but that, that's kind of the point that we were making, is that we're not in charge here. This all belongs to Jesus. And, that, and then we looked at, in, from 1 Corinthians 12, we looked at the, how, the, how the Holy Spirit, in salvation, each follower of Christ, every believer is equipped for the building up of the church. Each believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit to be a part of the body of Christ. And that this is not just for the spiritual elite. It's not just for the best and the brightest. It is for every single believer. And that God has, has done so and added people to his church as the body of Christ for a very specific reason. And this like, just shows the importance of the local church as the body of Christ. As a group of believers who have been placed in a specific local church for a very specific purpose. And that we also saw that then God has also established two specific offices in the church, two specific positions, that of elder and deacon, and how both of these positions are ultimately pointing to Jesus, 
The elders, as they, as they shepherd, as they um, give spiritual direction through teaching, they point to the good shepherd. The deacons, through being leading servants in the church, leading others to serve, they also point to Christ. Two weeks ago, Tanner preached on... Um, that is, uh, gave the example of, of Christ washing the disciples' feet. And thankfully, he told us that this is not a literal command that we literally follow. Um, but it's the, it's the command that he gave of serving others and loving others. And that example from Christ stepping out of heaven, humbling himself, and loving us. That is what he did. And that, we also model that as we love one another. That's why we all have our kitty litter scoops. Because it's dirty, it's messy. Even when things are hard, that same holds true. Serving one another, loving one another, being for one another. And then last week we looked at communion and how communion is a sacrament. It's an ordinance given to the church to remember what Christ has done, to celebrate what Christ has done. And, and as we've been looking at all these different things, we've really been looking at the, kind of the, the character and the nature of the local church. And I think this is really important because it's really important to understand that we're not just a random group of people. We're not just some random people in a random place on a random Sunday morning. But that this has been established by Jesus. It's all for Jesus. And that in its imperfections, in its struggle, in its difficulty, that the church, the local church, that we like, the, the local church is an avenue for God to display His grace to His people. And we've seen that in multiple different ways of what, how the church is structured. And Brenna can confirm this, but, like, all this stuff we talked about with the local church has just been really heavy on me the last, like, month or two, for better or for worse. And, like, RCG recently um, spent time going through 1 Corinthians, and it's just, there's so much in 1 Corinthians on the local church, so much. And what I want to show this morning, just what I think that Paul, the case he's going to make in 1 Corinthians, is that so much is, it's important to remember who we are as individuals and as a church, but also as a church to remember who we have become because of Christ. And so I, I want to, us to see this in 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to kind of walk through that over the next um, little while. But if you're in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter, or sorry, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we... These words that Paul wrote were, he wrote specifically to the church in Corinth. And if you remember back, probably a month ago at least, we talked just a little bit about this church in Corinth that's got all sorts of issues going on. 
Um, I mean, in the rest of the letter, Paul's going to talk about there's just rampant with sexual morality. It's rampant with idolatry and disorderly worship and division and all sorts of things are going on in this local church. And Paul is going to very clearly call them out for this. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to say, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. But what he does first here, like so far in the letter, only thing Paul has said is, I hear there's divisions among you. That's the only thing he's called them out for yet when he says this. He says, you guys are divided. What's going on? But here, he's reminding them of who they are. He hasn't called them out yet. He hasn't gone into all these issues that they have. But he's saying, wait, look who you are first. Look who you are. And then he's going to remind them of the gospel. He's going to remind them of who they are, but he's going to remind them of the gospel. And, and that's kind of what I just want to do this morning, is I want to remind us who we are, but then remind us of the gospel that unites us. Did you catch what... Yeah, I'm just going to go back and read this, these verses again. And what I want you to do, and this is... I debated whether to do this or not, because I think it can be really dangerous sometimes to try to read ourselves into every single situation that the Bible gives, knowing that it's written to a very specific audience, to a very specific issue, and so I don't think this, you can universally throw yourself into a situation and say, this is, how it must, this is what it must mean to me. But as we see here, these things that Paul is talking about, he's talking, again, how God interacts with the world, what God chooses, how God moves among his people. And that, those kind of things don't change. What, what God says holds value always holds value. What God has declared in with that economy of God, how God interacts, that's not going to change. So what I want us to see is, I think we can do that with this passage. So as I read this, what I want you to do is imagine that you are being told these things. That Paul is writing to you, to our church. So just, just picture that as I read this again. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My point in having you hear that as like written to you is not, I'm not trying to make the claim how foolish you are, or how weak you are, or anything like that. Because he's saying, like, consider your calling. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you have a great family line. But what he's saying, what Paul is saying to them, is that God does not save people because of what they have to offer. God is not... God did not send his son to save you because of something that you had to offer, some good quality in you, something that, that you could add to his team. Like Paul's saying, generally speaking, God is going to save those that are weak, those that don't think they're strong, the lowly, because it is those people who can only claim Christ. They can't claim anything of this world because they've got nothing. All they can claim is Jesus. And 
I want this to say this in a way that takes weight off of your shoulders. Because I said this a couple weeks ago, like we, I think we can fall into this trap. I can fall into this trap of thinking that, man, I'm so thankful that, that Jesus saved me, so I've got to prove to him why he did it. I've got to keep being obedient in this way. I've got to keep doing all the church things. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it's this obligation that weighs on us because we've got to prove to God that we were good enough for him to save. And what Paul's saying is like, this is not how God interacts. This is not the salvation that the Bible shows. Like, if you are trying to impress God with your actions, if you're trying to impress God with your obedience, if you're trying to impress God with any good thing in you, lay that burden down. We can't do it. God did not choose us because of what we have to offer, because of any good thing in us. Like, hear that. Like, trying to prove to God through our obedience, trying to prove to God in our goodness, we're fighting against the grace that was displayed on the cross. We're trying to say, look at me. I am good. Look at me. We're fighting against grace. We're saying that wasn't enough. And it was enough. So if you ever find yourself going along these lines of like out of obligation, trying to carry that burden of I've got to do more. I've got to do more for the church. I've got to do more in my walk with Christ. I've got to do more. I've got to read more. I've got to go to more things. Lay that burden down. Listen to these words that Paul is saying here. God does not work on any sort of merit system. Salvation is not based on a combination of right and wrong and making sure we come out on the right. Like, let me, I want to show you, going back to that economy of God, what, what God chooses in the world, what God says hold val- holds value. And what we see is that it's consistently different than the world. I just want to run through some examples and show you this, all, th- all through Scripture. In the book of Exodus, we see that the Israelites have been in captivity for 400 years. Harsh slavery. They, they're starting to cry out to God. Because of this, they're they're crying out for deliverance. We see this in Exodus 2. In Exodus 3, right away, we see that God has the perfect leader in mind. The perfect leader in mind to lead his people out of slavery. The perfect leader. Worldly wisdom would say, pick someone who is strong. Pick someone the best of the best. Make sure this guy has an impeccable reputation. Make sure that no one can call into question his character. Make sure he's this perfectly eloquent speaker who's going to lead well and go and and plead before leaders for these people. But God chooses Moses. God chooses Moses, an orphan who was raised in another home. God chooses Moses, who was a murderer that got chased out of his own country. God chooses Moses, someone whose reputation would be called into question later when he would go to lead his people. People are going to say, you're just a murderer. Look who you are. God chooses Moses, who believes his own speaking abilities are not good enough. That's who God chose. Think of King David. In 1 Samuel 16, we see that Saul is king. But God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, and choose the, and I'm gonna, he's going to show him the next king. So all the 
the, the brothers, all the sons of Jesse are kind of paraded before him. And it's like God keeps saying, no, that's not who I want. No, no, no. And we see that David hasn't even been called in for this. He's still out in the field shepherding the flock. He hasn't even been considered for this. He's just the youngest brother. And he gets called in and God says, it's that one. And that's where we see the verse in 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his, the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is interacting in the world differently than the world interacts. He's choosing things differently. Skip forward hundreds of years. Think of the birth of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the promised king. Old Testament says, king of kings, lord of lords. This one who everyone's expecting to come in the way of the kingly line, to come and be born in a palace with all this worldly riches. That's not at all what happens. God chooses for his son, Jesus, to be born with farm animals in a manger. That's what God chose. Fast forward another 30 years-ish. I'm not going to say too much because like, we use this example all the time. Look at the disciples. Like, look who Jesus chose to invest three years of his life in. The world would say, choose the best. If you're going to invest this and, and give them your mission after you leave, pick the best. Pick the brightest. Pick the best of the best. Jesus chose fishermen. He chose a tax collector. He chose Peter, who constantly talked before he thought about it. He chose James and John, who are described as the sons of thunder, who are going to start arguing over their place in Jesus' kingdom. He chose disciples that are going to desert him as soon as he's arrested. They're all going to leave. They're all going to run. But that's who he chose. So different to our worldly standards. That economy is different. God does not... Hold, give value to that which we hold, give value to. That, just think of job interviews. When we interview, so I was on a hiring committee a couple months ago to hire a new admissions counselor. And we were looking for someone who could do the job. We were looking for someone who would be a really good fit on our team, who was competent, who would do a really good job. Think of anything regarding athletics. Whether it's picking elementary school kickball teams or we're talking Major League Baseball. Like, you want the best on your team, right? You want someone who's going to help you win. That's what the world says. You want players who are going to have a lot to offer. So what's the point in all this? We cannot fall into the trap of thinking that God saves because of what we had to offer. Because if we fall into that trap, because it's something that we had to offer, some good quality in us, oh, God saved me because I can speak well. Oh, God saved me because I'm eloquent. God saved me because I'm really good on a guitar. God saved me because of this gift or that gift. If we fall into that thinking, where this leads, again, is this trap of trying to be good enough of trying to earn, of trying to continue to show God 
that he made a good choice. And it's just a cycle of wait and wait and wait. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Consider this. Like, your salvation is not based on your strength. Your salvation is not based on your wisdom. It's not based on your status. It's based on Jesus. That's all. That's all. And that's enough. This, let's keep reading. So, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, because, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He just says, like, God doesn't choose based on worldly wisdom. God doesn't choose based on what we have to offer. He's saying, like, I choose the lowly. I choose the weak. I choose those who don't think they can do it. Because it's those people who can only cry out, Jesus, Jesus. Like, it's believing that we are not strong enough, that we could never earn it, that we are weak, it is that belief that leads to this unavoidable truth that salvation is only in Jesus. If, you truly, if we truly believe that there is nothing in us that would cause God to want to save us, then the truth that salvation is only found in Jesus becomes so, so evident. I think it begins to answer the question of, why God would choose Moses. Because it wasn't about Moses. It was about some, someone so much better than Moses. We see it's not about David. Why would God choose David? Because it wasn't about him. He was pointed to one so much better than him. Disciples. It wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. Someone so much better than them. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. <laughs> listen to where that came from. Like Paul has just got done saying, look who you are. You are weak. God did not choose you because of you. He didn't choose you because of anything you had to offer. But look what you have in Christ Jesus. He became our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Look, at, Jesus became righteousness on our behalf. I mean, I'm told the kids are talking about righteousness in the back room. Jordan's like, man, we're teaching these kids about righteousness, and I think it's amazing, and I was going to have one of them come explain it, but chose not to. But what we see is like righteousness in a very, very brief explanation. 
Like righteousness is this right standing, to have a right standing before God. To be able to go before God and be in right standing. Like acceptable in his eyes. And the Bible very clearly teaches that none of us is righteous. No, not one. But it also says that Jesus became our righteousness for us. Look at, uh, you don't have to flip there, but it should be on the screen. Romans 3, 21 through 24. Verse 23 is a very well-known verse. For, there's, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a very well-known verse. But look, let's read 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Like, he's saying that Jesus, because of what Jesus did, what he did on our behalf, we have his righteousness. Like it says we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That we are righteous, not because of us, but because of Jesus. We've talked a lot about sanctification over the last couple months. Like this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We have that because of Christ. Redemption. Jesus becomes our redemption. Like, all these words are so interwoven, but they're all so beautiful. I mean, redemption, like the Bible teaches that we were slaves to sin. No escape, no hope, no good in us. Slaves to sin. Like we could spend a week or two probably on each one of these words, but the Bible shows that through Christ and through Christ alone, we have been redeemed. He's paid the price, that redemption price. He redeemed us out of that. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. First Corinthians 1 here. Paul's just given this progression of like, look who you are, but look what you have in Christ. Look what people you are. Like, look where you, he's saying, like, look where you've come from. Look at your background. None of that many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you had really anything to offer. But now in Christ, you have righteousness. You're continually being sanctified. He's redeemed you. Like, what part of that do we have any claim in? None. Like, it's all Jesus. Like, he's saying, like, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because we've got nothing to offer in this, in this passage. Say, look who you are, but look at what Jesus has done. Like, do you ever really just step back and say, wow, I'm saved. Wow. Like, I can have a relationship with God because of what Christ has done. Like, do you ever step back and say, wow, it's amazing what Christ has done. Listen, if salvation is not only through Christ, 100% Jesus, then we've got something else to boast about. 
If, if, if it's because of our obedience, if it's because of our works, if it's because of how hard we're trying, if it's because of anything good in us, then we've got something else to boast about. <laughs> There's something else that we can claim. If we, like, even if we say, man, God, I, I'm so thankful, like, that I made a good choice in following you. Like, even in that, we've got a reason to boast. We, we, no matter what you put in, like, we've got nothing to boast in apart from Jesus. Like, he can be the only boast that we have. And the, those that are low, lowly, those that are weak, those that fully understand their great need for Jesus, like, that's the only boast that we have. But in the same mindset, what I want to do is like shift gears a little bit. Because out of the same boast, out of the same mindset of who we are, where we come from, but who we are in Christ, I want us to look at kind of our lives and our ministry, our, the way that we interact with the world around us. Because a few weeks ago, Tanner talked about this like us and them mentality. Uh, he, I think it was a couple weeks ago. He's like, we fall into this trap of like this us and them. Like, look at us in here. We're going to serve the them out there. And he's like, no. Like, we're all the them. We are all the them. We're all in the place of desperately needing Jesus. But it's so easy to get in this mindset of like, well, I didn't need him quite as much as that person. Look how bad they are. Look at how bad that so-and-so is. We get in that us and them mentality. Like, based on 1 Corinthians, there can be no us and them. Like, our boast is only Jesus. We had nothing to offer. We had nothing to offer more than any other person. But Jesus. But Jesus. I'm going to borrow a sentence that I read this week from someone else. But it said, this pass- looking at this passage here in 1 Corinthians, it drives us all to the level ground at the foot of the cross. Understanding who we are in 1 Corinthians, it drives us to the level ground at the foot of the cross in equally great, desperate need of Jesus. And that's the same no matter who else we are talking to. We're on level ground, desperately needing Jesus. And as a church, no matter who we're talking to, as individual believers, no matter who we're talking to, we should be able to identify with them in their great need for Jesus. (laughs) That us and them mentality, the them, like we are just as desperate, just as needy, just as without hope, apart from Christ. Like, it's this message of hope. This message of our boast only being in Christ. That it's not based on us. It's not based on anything that we could offer, any good thing in us. It is that boast, it is that message of hope that we take to the world. That we take to Johnson City. That we take to Carver. That we take to Wilson. That we take right here 
And what I want us to see, like, and I'm going to spend the next four weeks that I'm preaching. So next week and then in a, like a couple weeks after that. Like how this mindset, this desperate need for Christ, this level, level ground at the foot of the cross, how this impacts the way that we serve others. That God shows special care for people in the Bible. We see his, his care for widows, the orphan, the sojourner. We see that so clearly in Scripture. But understanding that we are just as desperately in need as any widow, as any orphan, as any sojourner. Understanding this is going to lead us in serving and loving the orphan, the sojourner, the widow. But before we get there, I wanted to remind us of our story. That this, it's this level footing, this level ground at the foot of the cross who we all desperately need him. And we only have one boast, and that is in Christ. I think that we can hear this in two different ways. I've already kind of hit on one. But if, we're try, if you're trying to please God, even you say, yes, salvation is in Christ. Yes, it's in Jesus. But then, practically speaking, we're trying to earn it. We're trying to work hard. We get in this mindset of trying to do enough. If you're constantly trying to please God, you're trying to do it all yourself, to be enough to every single person, you're never going to feel like enough. You're never going to be able to. You're always going to feel like you need to do more. Like, you don't have to raise your hand, but has anyone ever felt like they were there? I have. And honestly, this is where I found myself a lot over the past couple weeks. It's constantly trying to be more, constantly feeling like I needed to do more, constantly trying to fix everything, to, get, to be more to more people. And there was so much that like, I, was not, I would not genuinely let myself rest until I did it all, until I accomplished, until I was enough, until I could fix it. And honestly, sermon prep this week like, wrecked me more than any other sermon I can point to. Because over and over and over again, I felt God is saying, look, I didn't put you in this position to be enough. I didn't put you in this position because you were strong enough. I didn't put you in this position because it's not about you, it's about me. Over and over and over again, he just hammered me with it. This, knowing that God saves, not because of us, because of nothing in us, this is really good news to a weary heart. This is really good news. It's this reminder that God did not choose the best. He did not choose the strongest. He did not choose you because you were enough. Unmerited grace. Unmerited. Cannot be earned. Because of no good work. Unmerited but I believe this can also hit home in a different way. <laughs> because I think we can also come in, like read this passage from a place of thinking that we're 
too bad for God to really love. Like, how could God love me? Like, look at what I've done. Look at my background. Maybe you struggle to believe that God could ever love you because of what you've done in life. Maybe you struggle to believe that God could ever do something amazing through your life. If you've ever been there, <laughs> I've been there. But listen, God knows how bad you've been. God knows how wicked your heart is. God knew Moses was a murderer. He knew David was an adulterer. He knew all the disciples were going to flee. That's why he sent his son to die on a cross. Because he knew that you could not meet the mark. That is why Christ died on the cross. I don't know where you find yourself in this. But regardless of where we find ourselves, our only boast is in Jesus. Only boast is in Jesus. Because in Jesus, on the cross, we see the unmerited grace of God. Could not be earned. I just want to end by reading something that I read this week. It's probably going to preach this sermon better than I've spent the last 40 minutes doing But let this just be a reminder. It says, God picks the scrawniest little girl to lead off his kickball team. God chooses a custodian with a heavy accent to share the gospel and save lives. God equips the overwhelmed and disheveled mother to nurture her children into spiritual giants. God commissions the invalid retiree to uphold dozens, even hundreds of missionaries on the field. God calls the man with autism to give the most profound articulation of his simple faith. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If your resume is sparse, your intellect feeble, your skills unimpressive, and your wisdom just average, fret not. God can use even you, even me. God wants those who look away from their self-sufficiency into his all-sufficiency. God uses all those who humble themselves before the cross, boasting only in him, his strength, his wisdom, his righteousness, his accomplishment. God empowers pathetic people for his glorious purposes to show his superior power. Do not begrudge your weakness. Do not lament your insufficiency. Rejoice that Christ is all-sufficient and always dependable. Look at 2 Corinthians 12.9. Embrace your weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon you to reveal God's surpassing greatness. Be encouraged, Christian. God intends to use you in all your multifaceted weaknesses and obscurity for his glory. Boast in the Lord. Let's pray.